As you're turning to Judges chapter 5, I want to add my word of greeting to those you've already heard. In the name of our precious Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, what a joy it is for me and a great privilege to worship the living God with you this morning in this place. Before we read the text, and we're only going to read 12 verses, though I hope to range over the whole chapter, I'm going to take a rather longish time to introduce the passage because one thing we need to do when we read the Bible is we need to be aware of what sort of genre, what category of literature we're looking at because the Bible is 66 books and the Bible presents us with many different kinds of literature. Uh, We have uh, this very rare a kind of writing called apocalyptic. We find that in the, in the book of Revelation, and there's a special way you approach that to interpret it. We have narrative literature. We have the epistles and the histories, and, and we have poetry. And what we have in, in Judges 5 is uh, the poetry of a song. And it's a particular kind of song. It's a patriotic song. And Instead of just describing it and breaking it down, I'm going to give you an example. The problem with the example is only about uh, less than 10% of us will remember the song. My friend Roy sitting right there, he'll remember it. And uh, he may even have memorized it because he's a, he's a patriot. Um, there was somebody named Johnny Horton. You never heard of him probably because he was killed in a car crash trying to get from Austin to Shreveport when he was 35 years old. That was 1960. The year before, he had written the song of the year by far. It was uh, number one on the Billboard charts as song of the year. It won a Grammy. And it it was oddly categorized as country and western. Really, it wasn't. It got lots and lots and lots of airplay on top 40 on on rock and roll stations. It dominated the airwaves. And it it was a genre that was later called maybe something like rockabilly, if you know what that is. But it was a song about a battle. It was a song about the Battle of New Orleans. And and, and Judges 5 is a song of battle. And uh, that famous song um, began in 1814. We took a little trip along with Colonel Jackson down the mighty Mississippi. We took a little bacon, we took a little beans, and we caught the bloody British in a town of New Orleans. We fired our guns and the British kept a-coming. There wasn't now as many as there was a while ago. We fired once more and they began a-running on down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. They ran through the briars and they ran through the brambles. They ran through the bushes where the rabbits couldn't go. They ran so fast that the hounds couldn't catch them on down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. Now, uh, those of you who are under... Don't give me any encouragement. I know lots more. So, uh, Those of you under 55 years old are totally mystified. But I, I'd say in 1959, maybe we were desperate. I don't know. We had Elvis. But, uh, I mean, that was a runaway, runaway hit that everybody knew and everybody sung. It was a song like this. It was a song which exaggerated patriotic themes. It was a song that left out some important details, like the fact that the war was already over when that battle was fought. But it took such a long time from the news of the Treaty of Ghent, signed on New Year's Eve, 
The month before, in Belgium, it took so long to cross the Atlantic and bring the news to North America, hey, the battle's over. Andrew Jackson didn't know that. The British didn't know that. And so they fought this battle, a tremendous American victory after the war was already over. Well, the thing you notice in the Song of Deborah, which we're about to read about, is she doesn't smooth over the embarrassing points. She doesn't leave out the parts which are uh, not so flattering to Israel because it's the Word of God. And God doesn't cover up the blemishes of the people that he means to bless and the people that, that he means to use. And so uh, I will also say that um, this is something for us. This is something which is very relevant, not in terms of physical warfare. And I'll say one more little thing. Kenan talked about this in the very beginning of Judges. I'm so grateful that Kenan is committed that we present the whole counsel of God from this platform. Because I'll tell you, I'm so lazy that if I, if I get to choose what I preach, I'm going to go straight to the Gospels. And one reason is because all the treasure is obvious, just lying on the ground everywhere and you don't have to dig. So I'm glad that I have a boss like Kenan who throws me a shovel, points me at judges and says, start digging. Because I'll tell you, there's treasure here. There's great treasure here, but it's not so obvious. And, and again, he talked about this, but you know, judges is a book of slaughter. And by the time we get to the end of the judges, there are gonna be Canaanite corpses piled high on the ground. Some of you are gonna be troubled by that. Let me just say, Come, come, let's talk about that. Because there are perspectives that aren't so obvious. And let me just say that, yes, in very, very rarefied, infrequent seasons, over 3,000 years ago, it was sometimes God's will for God's people to take the lives of God's enemies. Now, as New Testament believers, our role is quite the opposite. It's, it's our role to give our lives, to lay down our lives for Christ's enemies. And for those of you who weren't here last week, wow, did we ever have a tremendous ending to that study of Judges 4. And the way Kenan laid it out, please go get the, uh, please, please listen to the tape of that message. And I don't want to be a spoiler, but not all of you are going to do that, and I'm going to just say it now. Uh, he sh our, our pastor showed us how um, Christ actually did the converse of what J.L., the lady who, who murdered the Canaanite general in the tent, how J.L. stood at the tent and invited Barak, the Israelite commander, come and see what I've done to the oppressor with a hammer and nail, and how Jesus stands before the tomb and says, Come and see what I've done to sin and death and hell and your oppressor with a hammer and nails. You see, it's just the opposite. So if you're troubled by this stuff, it's because you're wired spiritually just to do the opposite, to give your lives. Of course, but that's not our role. That's not our role. If it troubles you that, well, I'm still mad that that was their role, well, come talk to me. Let's come talk about that. Because, you know, the fact is some some people have a real hard time letting God, who gave life, take life. 
and they have a real hard time letting God, the Creator, Redeemer, be the judge over the whole earth. But they don't have any problem at all judging God. And we need to talk about that. If that's troubling you, if that's keeping you from becoming a Christian, let's talk about this. I think I mentioned this once before. One of the most honored preachers in the United States who pastored what was the third largest church in the United States. It's still the largest church in my home state. He was so troubled by this that he said, we're not going to talk about that anymore. We're not going to talk about the, New, the Old Testament. We, we're going to talk about the resurrection. That's what we're going to major on. Well, I understand why he did that. I'm glad my pastor didn't say that, though. Okay, so Judges chapter 5. We're going to go 1 through 12. In honor of God and his word, let's stand for the reading. Judges 5.1. Hear the word of God. Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Ebenoam, sang on that day, saying, When leaders lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings. Give ear, O princes. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens poured. The clouds also poured water. The mountains gushed before the Lord. This Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted and the travelers walked among the byways. Village life ceased. It ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose, arose a mother in Israel. They chose new gods. Then there was war in the gates. Not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart is with the rulers of Israel who offer themselves willingly with the people. Bless the Lord. Speak, you who ride on white donkeys, who sit in judges' attire, and who walk along the road, far from the noise of the archers among the watering places. There, shall, there they shall recount the righteous acts of the Lord, the righteous acts for his villagers in Israel. Then the people of the Lord shall go down to the gates. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, sing a song. Arise, Barak, and lead your captives away, O son of Abinoam. The word of God for the people of God, and the people of God said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words so ancient but so applicable. We thank you that your Holy Spirit, who inspired Deborah to sing, and who inspired the chronicler of this book to write is here in this room, enthroned in our hearts. We thank you that he is our resident tutor, and we cry out to you for his illumining ministry that, he might, that we might know what it means, for his ministering wisdom that we might know why it matters, and for his deny, divine enabling so that we could do what needs to be done because we have this truth. We pray all these things in the name of 
your Son and our Savior, the Lord of glory, enthroned and coming, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, the first thing she does is she, um, she talks about the people of God volunteering. Now, there was a great preacher who taught young aspiring preachers. His name was Stephen Oford. He used to live a very short distance from here. He was born in Africa, the son of missionaries. And when he taught young men to preach, he said, don't postpone all your application to the end. Don't tack it on as an appendage, but integrate it throughout the text. And I would just say that one of the main applications is right here in the very beginning of the Song of Deborah. I've been here a year this month. Um, it's been a hundred times more fun than I could have imagined. It was a very difficult assignment for me to take for the simple reason that I'm attracted to need. And that's one reason we lived overseas for nearly a quarter of a century. And boy, that was great fun too, let me tell you. But as I looked around this place, I didn't see much need honestly, certainly not compared to the churches I pastored overseas, none of which owned their own property. And uh, as I look at other churches in Shelby County and in the Mid-South, we're just not very needy. Materially. But let me tell you something. We got needs. We got spiritual needs. Boy, do we ever. As a matter of fact, our material advantages can weaken us spiritually. You know why? Because it's a lot easier to pay mercenaries to go fight our battles for us. We reach a certain age. We think, hey, I, I raised my kids. I fought that battle in the heat of the day. We reach a certain stage where we got more money than we got time, and it's a big deal to give time. You know, sometimes somebody tells me that I got to read a book, and I think, well, you know, just let me give you $100. Because you know what? If I give you $100, somebody may give me $100. Somebody gave me $100 yesterday. I said, I don't want anything. They gave me $100 anyway. But you know, if you take five hours from me, I can never get it back. I can never get it back in time or eternity. I say this reverently. In a certain sense, in a certain sense, even God can't give it back to me. Or I say he won't. There's a certain sense that he can, but that's not what the sermon is about. So it's a big deal. It's a big deal to give your time. And it's easier to hire a mercenary to go fight God's battles. If you do that, if you give 10%, you're going to get about 1% of the reward you would have gotten if you fought God's battles yourself. Amen. And let me tell you what this passage is about. This passage is about actually ordinary people who are not soldiers. They're not trained to do battle. Actually ordinary and apparently unarmed who were used by God to win great battles. That's what the song is about. And at the beginning, Deborah praises and extols 
those who step forward willingly, when leaders lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer a tithe? No, themselves. When they offer themselves, that's what it says in verse 2. Unless you're tipped off, I'm pretty sure that nobody in this room would guess which chapter in the Old Testament is quoted more than any other chapter in the New Testament. I know I wouldn't get it. As a matter of fact, the right answer would not have been in my top ten guesses. It's Psalm 110. Psalm 110.3 says this, Your people will volunteer willingly in the day of your power. The day of your power. Uh, I don't like to beg Christians to witness. I don't even think that's the best use of my time. That's not even what I'm told to do. I'm told to pray the Lord of the harvest, that he would thrust out laborers into his vineyard. I'm supposed to beg God, because in the day of his power, our people will volunteer willingly. Don't miss the blessing. Don't miss the reward of being a servant. Don't stop writing checks. We're very grateful for them. But I think, maybe up to a point, that we would rather have your personal presence than your money. I'm not authorized to say that. <laughs> maybe we can scrub it from the tape. But... but you, you get what I'm saying. And that's the way Deborah starts out, this great song. The second thing she does is she resolves. She resolves and she says, uh, I'm going to sing. This is verse 3. I'm going to sing praises to the Lord God of Israel. Christian, you will not worship inadvertently. You will not, you will not obey unintentionally. You will not enter into everything God has for you to do without serious, prayerful, a forethought and resolve. There's a very, uh, it's now become a real famous saying among, especially among Baptists, but it's uh, Sunday morning worship is a Saturday evening decision. And it really is, because if you, if you wait till the last minute, the devil's going to distract you. He's going to... He's going to redirect you. He's going to deflect you. So you dig your heels in and say, I'm going to worship God with other Christians tomorrow morning. Nothing's going to stop me from that. And she resolved. She was going to sing songs to God. She was going to compose them. She was going to think about what he did. And she was going to sing it back to him, having also composed the melody. The next thing she does is she identifies the cause of Israel with the cause of God. Notice what verse 4 says. Lord, you went out from Seir. You're the one who marched. You were in the battle. You were the one who was fighting. The conversion of Paul, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, is one of the most important events in the New Testament for lots of reasons, which I won't go into. It's so important that it's, impo- that it's reported three times in the book of Acts. Once when it happens in chapter 9, twice in Paul's testimonies 
in chapter 22 and chapter 26. And you'll remember Jesus' great question to Saul of Tarsus. Why are you persecuting me? He's enthroned in heaven. He's beyond the range of the devil's weapons. He's already died and, and, and risen. You can't do anything to Christ except, except he identifies himself with the suffering of his people. His church is his body. And he regards an assault upon his children as an assault upon his person. And so, long before that, Deborah identifies the cause of Israel in battle with the cause of God in heaven. And then she shows us, the next thing she does is she shows us how God himself identifies with the cause of Israel in battle. How does he do that? Well, she says at the end of verse 4, the clouds also poured water. The mountains gushed before the Lord. How, does he, how did he identify himself with his people? By his control of the weather. By the fact that he made it rain. Back to that in a minute. <clears throat> Chapter 20, excuse me, verse 20 has become famous partially because of somebody who lived in Memphis. Uh, not the greatest scholar, but the most acclaimed writer on the Civil War was a Memphian. His name was Shelby Foote. I, don't, I mean, I can hope. I don't know for sure. I don't, I don't think it was important for Shelby Foote to identify as a believer. I, I have no evidence that he did. But he chose a Bible verse for the most famous thing he ever wrote. He, he wanted to be known as a novelist. He didn't want to be a historian. But he got famous because he wrote three big volumes on the Civil War. And when uh, Ken Burns did his documentary, he consulted Shelby Foote as an authority. And he, he not only made Shelby famous, he made him rich. And there's an excerpt from those three volumes on the Battle of Gettysburg. And the name of that excerpt is The Stars and Their Courses. And I don't, uh, Pace has read it. Uh, Bill Garner referred to the book, make sure I was alerted to it before I, because they, they knew about that verse in the chapter I was assigned. And I, I haven't read the book, but I think what he was saying was this. The South lost that battle and then the war because God was fighting against them. And that's a, that was a hard thing for Shelby Foote to say because he was a, a, a deeply dyed in the wool southerner. And Jackson was, General Jackson was dead. General Stewart was unaccountably, uh, was, was unaccounted for, riding around the Union Army, unavailable to General Lee. And, and what Shelby Foote was saying was, yeah, you can cite all these reasons. The fact is, God didn't want us to win that battle. And that's what Deborah is saying. She's saying, we won because God helped us. The stars in their courses were fighting on our side. Now, do you realize how many battles were won because of the weather? You may have heard of the armada of Philip II of Spain. Uh, Philip was 
angry at Britain because they became Protestant. And his army were fighting the Protestants of Holland, so he sent his navy to get his army out of Holland to go destroy Britain. And as they crossed under the southern coast of Britain and headed toward Europe, the wind blew. And the wind blew the ships north, and the smaller British ships outmaneuvered them and destroyed them. And the power of Spain in Europe was broken because of the wind. About 20 years ago, I was, I was on a flight from Frankfurt to London, and I looked out the window. It was a very clear day, and it was, um, I think, the second week of June. Uh, it was the anniversary of the Battle of Dunkirk. And at that altitude, I could see both coasts. And I was thinking there was just that much difference between victory and defeat. Because the British and the French were convinced that the Germans couldn't break through what was called the Maginot Line, this, this series of fortresses that the French had built, because they couldn't get through the forest. But they did get through the forest. And they trapped the British and the French. And there's a dramatic line in William Ch Manchester's uh, history of that time. He said, behind them lay the sea. And you know what happened before the Germans tore him to pieces? A fog rolled in. Hitler made a terrible mistake. He decided he was going to finish them off with the Air Force, not the infantry. And the Luftwaffe couldn't take off because of the fog. So they evacuated 337,000 troops, enabling them to fight again. It was the weather, not the force of arms. Well, this is not a new thing in military victories. And what, what Deborah was talking about was these iron chariots, boy, they were a formidable asset, unless the ground was muddy. Because if the ground was muddy, the wheels were mired, and the chariots were unmaneuverable. And that's what happened. And that's why Israel won. Now, she's also celebrating the final coup de grace, and it was literally a coup de grace in the victory. She makes reference to chapter 3, where a farmer named Shamgar slew a thousand Canaanites with an ox goad. And then she makes a reference to J.L., who at the end of chapter 4 assassinated the enemy general who'd sought uh, to rest in her tent. There's a, um, a passage in Pilgrim's Progress where Christian comes upon a kind of museum of God's armory, a museum of the weapons, the crude, simple weapons that the God of Israel used to win great battles against long odds. In that museum, Bunyan writes, is the jawbone of the ass that Samson took to slay Philistines. In that museum is the ox goad of Shamgar. 
in that museum are the five smooth stones that David faced the Gittite ogre called Goliath with. And you know, we can't be too careful of our choice of weapons. We, when we talk about that more at the end, but we spent a whole summer talking about that. In Ephesians 6, the great armory of God, the defensive weapons, the offensive weapon. And it's a critical decision. You know, Saul tried to force the, uh, his own armor onto David. What a mistake that would have made, would have been. Uh, the only outstanding person Saul ever killed was himself. And yet he thought that David should fight with his weapons. And David said, I can't go with these. You know, there are a lot of weapons that are being uh, forced upon the church of Jesus Christ today. And they're carnal. They're weapons of entertainment. They're weapons of uh, socioeconomic uh, crowd-raising principles. There are um, weapons of psychological manipulation. There are all kinds of weapons about which the faithful need to say, I'm sorry, I can't go with these. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're spiritual. And they're divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, for the pulling down of strongholds, 2 Corinthians 10. And just think, here's David. I'm going to take my sling and I'm going to take five rocks. If I don't get him with the first rock, I'll get him by the fifth. And so he's been, but he's really big. And I'm sure David's saying, really? How big is he? Well, he's really, really big. Well, that's really, really good. Because if he's really, really big, I'll kill him on an off day. I can't miss if he's that big. You see, it all depends on your choice of weaponry. The right kind of weapon for the right kind of battle. Now, what happens next is that Deborah gives out medals and she also hands out court martials. She gives out medals to those who stepped on the line and she rebukes and she shames those who cowered and those who would not go forth to battle. She talked about, and she says, look at verse 9, that's so sweet. She says, my heart is with the rulers of Israel who offered themselves willingly with the people. Bless the Lord. My heart is about the heroes who courted the dangers and joined the battle and risked their lives and, 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 and laid down their lives. She talked about all the ways that Israel had been oppressed. Verse 7 says village life had ceased. It ceased in Israel. People couldn't travel. These barbaric marauders, these Canaanites were always threatening. They couldn't even go to the well and get water because the archers would shoot arrows at them as they went to the well. That's what verse 11 means. And she stirs herself up. She preaches to herself, awake, Deborah, awake, sing a song, arise, Barak. And see what's happening, Barak is the general. She's trying to put iron into his veins. She's the one who's encouraging him. You know, that's another part of, of Western history. The fact that women 
often emerged as the greatest warriors. In Roman Britain, there was a woman called Boadicea. She lost her last battle and committed suicide, but for a while she, she rallied the troops that defeated Roman legions. There was Joan of Arc. You all have heard of Joan of Arc, whether you've heard of Boadicea or not. And of course, she was captured and burnt by the British. But she's a heroine in, in French history, as Deborah is a heroine in Israelite history. This woman, she talks about um, all of those who rallied for battle. She talks about Issachar. She talks about Zebulun. She talks about Ephraim and Benjamin. Then she excoriates and rebukes Reuben. She says in verse 16, why did you sit, sit among the flocks? Why wouldn't you leave your sheep? Are you addicted to the pipings of the flocks? You had a great searching of heart, didn't you? It was a hard decision, wasn't it? You made the wrong decision. Gillian, why did you stay on the other side of the Jordan? Dan, why did you stay on the boats? Why didn't you fight? Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the point of death. That's verse 18. Naphtali also, on the heights of the battlefield, they joined the battle. Why did you other tribes hold back? Again, she says, the stars from their courses fought against Sisera. And she talks about the rain again. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent. The torrent of Kishon. Oh, my soul. You join the battle too. Oh, my soul. You march on in the strength of the Lord. Now, we got to wrap this up. At the end, she does something that sounds a little bit like taunting. In verse 28, she begins to talk about the mother of the Canaanite general who was slain in Jael's tent with the tent peg through his temple. That grisly scene that we talked about, that Kenan taught on last week. And I think it's possible that Deborah had a supernatural knowledge of exactly what Sisera's mother was doing. Uh, because in chapter 4, we discover she's a prophetess. That is, she's divinely inspired by God to know things that no one else knows. I think that's a possibility. I also think it's a possibility that it's poetic license and that she's imagining what the women who were left behind and the mothers of the Canaanite soldiers were doing while they, they were hoping that their boys were out slaughtering the Israelites. And what Sisera's mother was doing, according to Deborah, she was imagining the booty that would be brought back. There's going to be dyed garments. We're going to plunder the beautiful tapestries and fabrics of Israel. Now they're going to belong to us. But it's not only that, and this is pretty crude. Look at verse 30. To every man a girl or two. Our boys are going to bring back sex slaves for themselves. They're going to kill the young men and take the young wives back with them. Or they're going to kill the fathers. They're going to take the young virgins. And they're going to help out around the house. They're going to prepare the meals. They're going to wash the clothes. And they're going to spend the night with us. Isn't that wonderful that our boys are going to have this reward for battle? 
you see how depraved this is. You see what they were looking forward to. You see how they were fantasizing over what their spoils of battle were going to be. Now, what I want to do, and then we'll be done. Remember I said they were actually ordinary, like you and like me. They weren't trained as soldiers. They were apparently unarmed. Apparently unarmed. But God had put within reach all they needed to win his victories. There was a farmer named Shamgar. Well, he had an ox goat. He didn't have a spear or shield, but he had an ox goat. And he used it to ill effect on the enemies of Israel. And there was this woman with the enemy general sleeping in the next room. She doesn't have any weapons, but she says, well, I look around in the garage, and she finds, well, I got a tent peg, and I got a hammer. Let's see what we can do. (laughs) Children, we're not unarmed. We spent a whole summer cataloging the weapons of our warfare, Ephesians 6, 10 and following. We're not unarmed. Take up the arms your Savior died to give you and wield them and do battle in the cause of Jesus. What are you talking about? I'm talking about this. You're armed with the power to forgive. You realize how rare that is? You realize how many people spend, waste their time trying to figure out if someone who's offended them deserves forgiveness? Children, children. If they deserve forgiveness, it's not forgiveness. It's only understanding. We can't forgive a deserving person. If they don't deserve our forgiveness, hallelujah. We can practice the grace of God and forgive them, the grace of Christ and forgive us. You think we deserve Christ's forgiveness? You'll never gain the power to forgive by studying what your offender did or didn't do. You'll only gain the power to forgive by studying the life and character of the one who forgave you. How about prayer? What a weapon that is. Avail yourselves of prayer. You know what? It's the most democratic opportunity. Some people may be good speakers. They may have big bank accounts. They may be really good at organization. I'm horrible at organization. They may be good leaders. I'm not. And they may have assets we don't have. But you know what? Every Christian gets 24 hours a day and all the promises of God. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And we come through the blood of Jesus and we beseech our God. And it's prayer that moves the arm of God and nothing stops the arm of God. So we pray. And how about this thing called love? Love covers a multitude of sins. To love with the love of Christ. To love with a love that we can't find in our heart, but we get it from the Holy Spirit who's come to live in our lives to reproduce the life of Christ. You realize what a mighty weapon love is to show goodwill to people who are hostile to you, people who hurt you, 
to people who are treating you like you're an enemy. These are our weapons. God doesn't send his children into battle unarmed, and we have a battle to fight. Join it! For we fight not for victory. We fight from victory. It was won at the cross, and it was certified on Easter morning. Jesus, after he entered Jerusalem, asked his disciples to go prepare a room they can meet in. In that room, he told them that he was going to leave and go prepare a room for them. That's what Jesus is doing for you now. Do you realize that? You who are blood-washed? He's getting your room ready. But before that, he told the disciples, you go get the room ready for us to celebrate what in many ways was the last Passover of Israel and the first communion of the Christian church. That's what we're about to do. We're about to remember Jesus' death in the way that he prescribed. As far as we know, Judas had left by that time. It's for believers. We're not excluding you. You're excluding yourself. We invite you to receive Christ now. Trust him. Say, Lord, I'm a great sinner. Christ is a great Savior. I claim the benefit of Christ's death and resurrection. Save me because of Jesus. You say that to God right now, you come stand right here and you take the bread and the cup. If you will not, do not. But friend, friend, don't postpone it too long. I've been asked to do seven funerals in three weeks. You don't know when your friends will get a call about you. You don't know if you'll have another invitation to repent and receive Christ and to take the bread and the cup in the way that he commanded. If you will, then come on, come on.